to start uh, a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, having been here for almost five years, this is the first Gospel account uh, that we have dealt with from start through to finish, which we'll be covering over a period of 31 weeks. And I should say that as a son of a Gideon, I came underdressed. I did not have a Bible in my pocket, and I guarantee you I cannot fit this into my sock. So, Dad, if you're watching, my apologies for not having a Gideon Bible in my pocket. Let's come before the Lord in prayer, because as we have heard already, uh, the Lord works through his word, both to lead people to salvation, uh, but also to maturity in Christ. So let's come before him in prayer now. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have provided a way that we can be saved. But Lord, you have given us your, your Holy Spirit, who will be with us till the end of the age who helps us to understand your scriptures, who helps us to, to live in such a way, who is at work within us to, to work and to will that which is pleasing in your sight. And so, Father, we pray and ask that you would take your word this morning and you'd help us to see something of the beauty and wonder of what you have done for us and what you have offered to, the, to this world in the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Who would believe me if I said over the next 31 weeks we are going to be looking at the most important information you will ever hear in your life? Now some of you might say, yeah, I'm on board with you, Steve. Now others might think, you don't know me from a bar of soap. How on earth can you say that what you're going to share is the most important thing I'll ever hear in my life? It's a pretty bold statement. Well, I'll give you another really bold statement. The reason why I say that is because every single thing in life, from start to finish, is about Jesus. And over these period of 31 weeks, we're going to be looking at one of the biographies, or one of the Gospels, that looks at the life, ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The one whom all of this is about and in the process we'll see how everything is to do with him and also why this is the most important thing for any of us to know and as we look through the gospel of mark it will have one of two avenues it'll either be an opportunity to investigate jesus for the first time you might not know much about who jesus is Here's a great chance to have a look at who he is, what he said, what was his claims. Just suss him out for yourself. Or for those who are already followers of Jesus Christ, a helpful review, reminder of who he is, what he has done. And as a people who have been called to be conformed into his image, to see something of the nature of his character, what he was about, what he did, what he loved what he opposed, that it might shape our own lives as well. Now, there's four biographies or gospels of Jesus in the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Mark, whom we'll be looking at, is the shortest of those four. It was also considered to be the first one to be written. Now, the early Christian writers say that while Mark was probably not an eyewitness to all of the things recorded, 
but most likely his source was someone who was in the closest three people who were to Jesus. Peter, James and John and particularly Peter who recounted to Mark the things that he saw with his own eyes Mark was able to record for our benefit. Most likely written in the late 50s, possibly early 60s. So we're talking within 30 years of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. Now why that's an important thing to do is not just so you can answer a question on a trivia night, but it means that the things which Mark wrote about Jesus, he wrote at such a time that people were alive who could verify and say, no, that stuff you wrote about Jesus, Mark, you are so far off. I was there, that's not the way it happened. But there is no one who lived in that time who wrote debating or accusing Paul, sorry, Mark or any of the other gospel writers of misrepresenting the truth of which they speak about Jesus. Now, there's always going to be someone who says, yeah, but that's the Bible. You can't trust the Bible as a source for telling you about anything. You want to know something? Historians have a method by which they determine the historical accuracy or the reliability of manuscripts that they use for all historical writings. And you want to know what is the most reliable document in all of world history? It's the Bible. It actually has the highest rating by miles of any other historical document. Let me give you an example. Nobody questions the things that we know about Julius Caesar. You read it, we take it as fact. No one says, oh, I don't trust that material. The main sources that we have for Julius Caesar's life were written 100 years after his death. Again, you lose something of that, that extent of people being alive to verify whether what is written is true or not. Of the main source that we have, the oldest copy we have is some 900 years after Julius Caesar's death. Now, there are a number of different writings that spoke about Julius Caesar, some of the historians, some people recording some of his speeches. But in reality... You've got less than 100. A lot of them, some 900 years is the oldest that we have after the events. Whereas the records that we have about Jesus Christ, there's up to 5,000 plus copies just of the gospel accounts of Jesus, but then all of the other historical accounts. It wasn't just the Christian writers who wrote about Jesus. You've got people like Tacitus, Josephus, who were historians writing about that time, who also refer to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So you can actually have absolute assurance, more than any other historical document you've ever looked at and just taken at face value, that what we have today is an accurate representation of what Mark recorded and what Mark recorded during a time when people were alive who could either contest or verify the things that he wrote. So today we've called the message Introducing Jesus because in 20 verses Mark covers a lot of territory but first and foremost he introduces who is this Jesus that this is all about. 
It might seem a bit of a fast-paced thing. You'll see throughout the New Testament, the word that's translated immediately actually occurs 51 times in the entire New Testament. 41 of those are in the Gospel of Mark. That's how. And when you heard the reading, you'll notice, wow, that was a really brief account of an event that I've read in one of the other Gospels. As we work our way through, we're looking at Jesus being presented as the God-man in verse 1. We speak of his forerunner in verses 2 to 8, his baptism in 9 to 11, his temptation in 12 to 13, and his ministry in 14 to 20. Firstly, the God-man. When you heard the reading read, you'd notice that Mark is not one who wants to waste words. He writes things very concisely and very sharp and to the point. For example, we have two verses in the entirety of Mark's Gospel regarding Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. You get 11 verses in Matthew, 13 verses in Luke of that same thing. So when Mark begins his biography, his first sentence to introduce Jesus packs a punch. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, for those very familiar with the Bible, you think, oh, that's pretty plain, straightforward. But when you look at what is said in that one sentence, the name Jesus means saviour. Christ is not his last name, it is a title. It means Messiah, the anointed king. And the Son of God. All in one sentence. This is the Saviour. This is the Messiah, the anointed King. This is the Son of God. And we shouldn't think of Son of God in the sense to which I would say, Kenzie is my daughter, as though there was once a time when Kenzie wasn't and we brought her into being. But the eternal Son, the one who has always existed in that unique relationship with the Father, not created, but has existed for all eternity. As John introduces Jesus in his gospel account, he says, speaks of Jesus saying he was there in the beginning, he was with God, and he was God. That he brought everything into being and nothing exists other than that which he made. It's pretty clear. If, he, if it exists, Jesus made it. Everything you look around, you enjoy in the scenery, you travel around, he made it. For his glory. And Mark tells us what he's writing is the good news, which is what gospel means, about this Jesus, about this Messiah, this King, this Saviour, this eternal Son of God. Now that opening line gets your attention. There's some pretty bold claims. And it's supposed to get your attention. This is something you don't want to miss. This is the most important news you will ever hear. As Luke speaks of the way in which the angels communicated to the shepherds regarding the birth of Jesus, they said, this is good news of great joy for all the people. So as Mark begins by speaking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, at first it might seem a little bit strange that the first thing he talks about the beginning he goes back some five, six hundred years to speak of a forerunner who was prophesied. 
Mark brings our attention back to prophecies from Malachi 3, verse 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. He slightly amends the quote from Malachi 3, verse 1. In Mark's gospel, he, he records about the one who will prepare, he's the one who will go before your face, he will prepare your way. In Malachi 3, it is very clear, it is God speaking and he says, he will prepare the way for me. Malachi is speaking, has got God speaking, God saying, there is a forerunner, a messenger who will prepare the way for me, for God. And he's rightly applying this towards Jesus Christ. This messenger, not just preparing his way for a good teacher, not just preparing a way for a, for a moral guy, he's preparing himself for God himself to come to his people. This messenger will be the, the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for him. Now if you think back to the times when Malachi and Isaiah are writing, Due to the rebellion of the people, due to them not giving God the honour to which he was due, God had withdrawn the sign of his presence, his glory from the people. And here he's saying, there's a forerunner coming, he needs to prepare for me to come back and dwell amongst my people again. So how do you prepare a people for a holy God? to dwell amongst a sinful people. Well, we read of John's ministry in verses 4 and 5. He appeared baptising in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John's ministry was a ministry of repentance. Calling people to turn from their disobedience and dishonouring of God to him. It's a changing of your mind from evil to good, which reflects itself in a change of actions. He's calling them saying, you have not honoured the God who has given you life and breath and everything. Turn from your evil ways. Prepare for his coming to you. And in the process, he performed a baptism where people could symbolically express their sense of their uncleanness before God, being needed to be washed in order to be able to be in his presence. And as it says in verse 4, it was a baptism for or in preparation to receive forgiveness of sins. In order to be ready to receive forgiveness of sins, the first thing you need is to recognise that you are a sinner. And what might seem strange to your ears, people flocked to John the Baptist in crowds. This guy is calling people to repent that they're not right before God. These were religious people. These were Jews going out in great numbers. Not to some fancy speaker. This was John the Baptist dressed in his camel hair, eating his locusts and his wild honey, 
calling people to repent. He wasn't backwards in his words. We read in one of the other Gospels when some of the religious leaders came out and he says, you brood of vipers. Who who caused you to come out? Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Bear fruit, live in a way in keeping with repentance. He spoke with words of urgency. And it was necessary that he spoke with urgency. As Paul tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a message we all needed to hear. But when these people, they came out, despite their Jewish heritage, as they heard John speak, they were all convicted that they were guilty, that they were not right before God, that they needed their sins forgiven. And the first place they start is with repentance. John's hard words regarding repentance isn't because he's a bigot, isn't because he's unloving. It's because he desired for them to experience the forgiveness and grace that they could find in Christ. And likely in the same sense it would be unloving for me. If you are still living for yourself, not giving God the honour for which he is due, it would be unloving for me to not also call you to repent, to turn from your rebellion, to turn to him, to trust him, to enjoy the blessing of being his child. Not because I want to condemn you, and far from it, but because, as Jesus says, you're already condemned. I want you to be Freed from the condemnation that you are already facing because of your rejection of God. Even though there were massive crowds coming out to John, the focus isn't John at all. The focus is Jesus. When John speaks, he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. This is John the Baptist speaking. So highly esteemed by the people that people were going out in droves to hear him. Even Jesus himself says on John the Baptist, of all men born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist thinks of himself in relation to Jesus Christ, he says, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandal." Now, culturally, even a Jewish slave would say, no, that's below me, I won't do that. That is how far this great man esteemed Jesus Christ to whom he bore witness of. So when we understand who Jesus is and what John says about him, and we've seen that this is a baptism symbolic of of repentance of sin being not right before God, it sounds a little strange that the next thing that happens is that Jesus gets baptised. And we see something of that shock in Matthew's account in chapter 3. John kind of like, no, we should be doing a flipsy here. You should be baptising me, not the other way around. 
It makes sense that John would hesitate because John knows this was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus hasn't sinned. This is the one that John announced, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why would he be baptised? Well, it comes down to why did he come? Jesus came to be a substitute for sinful mankind to bear the penalty of their sin on the cross. And it's fitting that he would begin his ministry identifying with the very people he came to rescue, he came to save. He entered into that water which symbolically where the sins of the people have been washed. He enters into that water identifying with a sinful people who he will later die on a cross because he came to represent them. And for the first time at his baptism, we see the Trinity there in the one place. We see Jesus. After his baptism, we see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And we see the voice from the Father saying, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now imagine the thrill for John. This is what his life and his ministry was all about and before his very eyes. Here he is. And he gets to see the Holy Spirit come upon him. He gets to hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But how, as the Spirit comes upon Jesus, how does he lead Jesus? Probably not in a way which you would naturally expect as we look at his temptation. In Mark's account, you see how the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and then goes on to describe how he was tempted there by the devil. But we see the direct connection placed in Matthew's recalling of the events in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. How many of you have that in terms of anywhere on the spectrum of how you would think the Holy Spirit would lead? To be tempted by the devil. Just like Jesus being baptised and you think, hang on, this doesn't kind of fit my preconceived ideas of how things should work. The Holy Spirit leading someone to be tempted by, by the devil. I thought he only did good things. My answer to that would be this. Anything which God can use to grow you and benefit you spiritually is a good thing. Many of you will have testimony where you can bear witness that it was actually through adversity things that you went through were times that actually God used the most to strengthen you and draw you nearer to him. And while there's probably many more, I believe there's three significant reasons why this temptation was important. The first is the Spirit led him to be tempted. The Spirit enabled him to resist. Yes, Jesus, the God-man, he's fully God, he's fully man, but so often in his ministry he surrenders his use of his God powers and, and depends upon the Holy Spirit. 
Secondly, it presents Jesus as the second and perfect Adam. Where the first Adam failed when he was tempted by the devil, Jesus succeeded. He's presented as the new and perfect Israel who had failed in the wilderness, but Jesus did not. Although Mark's account's very brief, he doesn't say much in the, just those couple of verses. When you read the other accounts in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4, it says that Jesus was tempted for the entirety of 40 days. It's not just those few examples that it is given. But of the examples where it is given, Jesus' response every time is, it is written. What God has said will govern what I do. I will not listen to what you're calling me to do, even if what you're calling me to do may not be in and of itself bad. But if it's being done in obedience to Satan, then it certainly is. Which not only reminds us how we resist temptation. We need to know the scriptures. We need to know when a thought comes to our mind or someone's tempting us towards something. No, I will not because it is written. And incidentally, every time Jesus quotes with an it is written comes from an earlier part in Deuteronomy where God has outlined to Israel how they should have behaved themselves in the wilderness. Further highlighting Jesus as the true and perfect Israel of God. He's unlike anyone who's ever walked the earth before. He's the only one who's never succumbed to the temptation of the devil. He couldn't be hindered there, even when he was weak and hungry. And he will never be hindered in his ministry either. Verse 14 records how Jesus came into Galilee after John the Baptist had been arrested. As Luke gives that same account, he says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit and came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. What was that good news that Jesus proclaimed? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He starts like, the time is here. They anticipated a time that was coming for centuries. The Jewish people had been waiting for a long-awaited Messiah, a king descended from David. And he's saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. They were waiting for this king. But you'll notice so many times Jesus keeps helping them understand what he means by this king. Because their concept of kingdom was very different. They understood that this king would save them from their enemies. But they could only think of geographical enemies, not our greatest enemy, which is sin. And Jesus says, this time is near, the kingdom is at hand. Elsewhere he says, it's in your midst. And it's in their midst because the king of the kingdom has arrived. And just like John the Baptist before him, what's the first and necessary preparation? Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. He says, because the kingdom's here, turn from your sin. Turn from your dishonouring God. Turn to God and believe and trust in him. 
Now, sure, I'm a little bit slow, I know that. But I just picked up on a link that I'd never picked up on any other time reading Mark as I was preparing. What's the first thing Jesus does after announcing the kingdom of God is at hand? The time is fulfilled. The first thing he does is he calls disciples. He calls the disciples who are learners, that's all the word effectively means, those who will come to learn about Jesus, who Jesus is, but also learn to become like Jesus. From day one, Jesus' plan for this proclaiming of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom would be done through ordinary, everyday people, his disciples. There's no separation. His call to follow him was a call to go and make fishes of men. That they too would learn how to announce the good news of the gospel, who would equip other disciples to go on and do the same. That's how Jesus began his public ministry. Follow me. Be fishers of men. He finishes his ministry. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. The time has come. The king has come. Repent and believe. And as you believe and trust, you want others to turn and trust. So what? So I said, Mark is very brief. He doesn't go into all of the details. I know our Tuesday community group will be going through um, Mark at the same time, but we'll be able to look at some of the fuller details. But even still, in 20 verses, Mark says a lot about this Jesus. Mark says a lot about this Jesus as to why it's so important we know who he is. All of it proclaiming his greatness. Where he announces the Saviour, the Messiah, the Son of God, fully man, fully God, the one who identifies and stands with sinners in baptism and who will die with them on the cross. He's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. He's the new and perfect Adam. He's the new and perfect Israel. He's the one with immeasurably more value than John the Baptist even though Jesus would speak of John the Baptist as being the greatest of all those born of woman. He's the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that came upon Jesus, that led him into the wilderness, gave him the ability to resist the devil and to proclaim the good news as he travelled into Galilee. He's the beloved Son of God with a unique relationship with the Father with whom the Father is well pleased. He's the one who surrendered all the perfections of eternity with the Godhead and the angels and entered down into the mess and the trouble of our world. A saviour, messiah, king and lord. And then who out of love calls us into his kingdom through repentance and faith. And he entrusts the good news to all of these children 
that we would proclaim it into a world who does not yet know him. These are some bold claims that Mark makes of Jesus. If you stay with us for the next 30 weeks, it is my prayer that you'll be convinced that every single thing that Mark says about this Jesus is true and that it is worth giving up absolutely anything to follow him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you Father because of this Jesus. We are not right in your sight. We're very well aware of how unworthy we are before you. But we thank you that Jesus came to be our representative. He came to die a death on behalf of sinners that all who would repent and trust in him would be called children of God, co-heirs with Christ. And as he rose in victory, we know too that he will raise us to be with him. We know that he has given us his promised Holy Spirit who will be with us to the end of the age. And he has given us a mission. He has given us and trusted us with the glorious good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, we pray that in these weeks ahead, as we look at your son Jesus, what he has done, that you might call us to repentance and faith if we have not reached that point yet already. But Lord, that you would equip us, challenge us, and shape us to be the children you want us to be. For your honour and your glory. Amen. And if you'd like to read ahead, we're looking at verses 21 to 45 next Sunday.